Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Well, let's get into the word this morning. The breath of God and a mighty rushing wind. I have this deep conviction, and I know many of you share it as well, that revival is coming. I think when you look across our our culture, when you look across um, some of the challenges that we're seeing in our schools, when you look across our cities, our government, um, the challenges and the things that are mounting up, it's a good indication that revival is coming. Even when you look in the church and you see the stirring of gifts and you see young kids willing to give a week during their summer to go and preach and share the gospel. You see kids, young adults that want to go to Vegas, not to party, but to go and preach to the partiers and to go and share the hope of this gospel of Jesus. It, it indicates something about God stirring something and that revival is coming. I've had a lot of talks with Pastor Michael and with elders and staff, and we have a conviction that it might even come during our generation. Now, we can't control that, but we pray into that, and we we do feel that revival is coming and coming quickly. When you think about this this concept of a mighty rushing wind of God, essentially that's talking about revival. That's talking about this place of a stirring up of gifts. It's talking about looking at people who before it would have seemed like they were unreachable, impossible, and all of a sudden they find this hunger for the Word of God. They're showing up at prayer meetings. They're reading their Bibles. You're finding a change in them that's dramatic, and it, it, it sweeps across our nation. The Lord does it in a large scale, and many of us pray for that, as we should. You find that those who once spent their evenings watching nonsense on, on television and, and staying up late doing things on laptops, all of a sudden are, are trading those things out to, to memorize scripture. Worship songs are coming into our hearts instead of gossip. We're starting to find a shift And it all indicates that revival is coming. It's what we want to see. Anxiety and fear and the love of money and all the different things related to selfishness start to fall off of us as the light of Christ comes into our lives. And we see these things on a sweeping, on a mass scale. And it's what we see in faith. It's what we pray for. I was on a walk in my neighborhood a couple of weeks ago. And um, as I was just kind of walking and praying, I just had this random thought, like, how cool would it be to just see people sitting on their porches worshiping God together and sharing the gospel with their neighbors. And, and it was just the, the most important thing to all of us. So then in my own flesh, I start thinking, well, okay, I got to start printing out flyers. We got to do the porch revival packet. We got to get things. And you want to start forcing it in your own strength because we're so eager and we're so excited to see revival. I talked a little bit about the culture, the confused minds and, and oppressive leadership. We see people more confused than they've ever been, arguing about gender and and basic common words in our language, arguing about whether a baby is a life and all of these very challenging things that that have just so, you know, struck us so deeply. And so it prompts this sense that revival is coming. But there's something very special that God is doing before revival comes. Before we see a big sweeping, before we see God moving on a large scale, there's always something very gentle, very subtle that he does with his people. 
And it's something that we have to learn to just rest in. He brings us into this secret place where we get a chance to see his heart and know him. And that's what I call the breath of God. And we'll, we'll get into some scriptures that talk about where those concepts are coming from. But there's this profound sense of a stillness and a peace. Sometimes you feel it in worship and you wish you could just linger there all day. There's just something he does that just prompts us. He shuts everything else down and begins to pour his heart out. And you learn of his character through those moments. And this is the model that he's given us for revival. Before we get to see the big sweeping changes, there's something very quiet, very subtle, very precious that he does in us. A couple weeks ago, you guys know the Russos, um, Elder Anthony and Valine. They're good friends of ours and live right behind us in the neighborhood. And so he called and he said, hey, we're going out of town for a week for a wedding. Would you mind watching a few plants for us? And so I said, okay, fine. I was like, no big deal. Um, you water them and sit them by the window and it should be fine. So then when we get the plants in the house, I think there were four or five of them. These ones have to be turned at certain points of the day. This one's got to go on the porch. Uh, you got to do the blinds at like noon and so they don't get direct sunlight. So I'm a project manager. Before, before I was a pastor, I, business was project manager. So I'm Mr. Efficiency. So I told my wife, why don't we just douse them? Just flood the plants with water and then we don't have to worry about it for a few days. And she's just kind of looking at me the way y'all are. And, and I'm like, water is, how could water be bad for it? It's clean water. It's what the things need. We just water it. We leave it for the week. And when the Russos get back, we had to do the minimal amount of labor and, and everything's fine. So obviously, I don't know much about plants, right? Because um, what Danny actually taught me in her infinite wisdom is if you flood the plants, even though what they need is water, if you flood the plants, you'll actually rinse the nutrients right out of the soil. So you gave them something that was good, but you did it ahead of the proper pace. You did it outside of its time. And so you actually damaged the plants. And I didn't do it. I feel like you guys are waiting on like the punchline. <laughs> I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I listened to my wife, blessed man. The, the same principle applies spiritually. There are things that, that are good. We're chasing revival. We want to see the big sweeping change. We want to see God flood the neighborhoods. We want to see him fill our churches. I was saying in the first service, it would be amazing to see a day when the seats are all full in here and none of us regulars have anywhere to sit because God is moving in our city. But before we'll ever know how to steward a mighty rushing wind of God, we've got to get content under the breath of God. Let me read to you a couple of verses. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 2. Familiar passage, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what's happening here is the... The day of Pentecost relates to, in the Old Testament, what's called the Feast of Weeks. And it's the celebration in the Jewish tradition um, where they basically make a number of different offerings in thanksgiving to God for the barley harvest. And so they have a number of different guilt offerings and burnt offerings. And all of it is because God has provided a harvest in that season. And then God would go behind uh, along with that and he would say, this isn't just for you to reap. The harvest isn't just for you. When you go out and you gather the barley, when you gather all of the crops, leave some things on the edges. That's going to be for people who are traveling through or for the poor. So it was this image 
of God blessing his people, pouring out on his people in a mighty way and saying the overflow is for others. And so when we look at what he's doing in Acts 2, it kind of harkens back to that in some sense because here he is pouring out this, this miraculous sense of his presence. He's rushing in his mighty wind on the people, all of it to produce a testimony in the preaching of the gospel to those who are unsaved. And you have to just put yourself in, in the room with them and just imagine these are people who were hiding from the Jews. They were fearful. Their Lord had been crucified and he, had, he was raised from the dead and he had ascended to heaven. But there was still this sense of what are we going to do with ourselves? The Jews are looking for us. Uh, they're, they're kind of locked away waiting and trying to sort themselves out. They had to figure out how to replace Judas. They had a number of things they were trying to sort out. And then all of a sudden, this rushing wind comes in, and you've got these cloves of, of fireballs shaped like a tongue floating on, on top of people's heads. And they're not just speaking other languages miraculously. They're preaching the gospel in other languages, languages they hadn't studied, languages they hadn't known. And what we tend to do sometimes is we prioritize this interaction with the Holy Spirit over another one that I'll show you in just a moment. But we rush to the idea that it's all about the explosive. It's all about the use of gifts. It's all about forcing the revival and kind of manufacturing a move of God. And as I said earlier, there's an order. There's an order in the way that God does these things. So let me take you to John 20. This is roughly 50 days or so before Pentecost and Jesus on the evening of his resurrection comes and appears to his disciples again. Uh, so John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the, ver the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So this is happening around the time of Passover. And I'm, I'm giving you these things so you can kind of track with the timeline. So Pentecost is happening. Passover is roughly 50 days prior to that. So we have this big explosion of the gifts. We have this big moment of the Holy Spirit rushing in his mighty wind on the people. But prior to that, roughly 50 days before that is the Passover time. And this is where Jesus shows up in a much more gentle way. He shows up in a much more quiet way. He's in the secret place with them. And the Bible says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so the, the caution for us is not to prioritize one over the other. We need both. But the order in which God brings revival is, yes, he's going to bring a harvest. Yes, he's going to release the gifts. Yes, he's going to do the miraculous. But he always starts by calling his people unto his heart first. And so what we have to take from that is we're never going to steward the mighty rushing winds of God if we don't know the breath of God. The breath of God is the place of intimacy. It's the place where we meet with God apart from gifts, apart from what it means about us, but we come into this place of sharing in his burden for the people. When he comes and he appears to them here in this, in this passage, he says, peace be with you. There's this sense that in their fear of the Jews and in all of their doubting and all their confusion about what just happened, maybe they're beginning to doubt all that Jesus did. And he comes and he says, my message to you is peace. There's peace between you and the Father. Your sins are forgiven. He says it to them again, peace be with you. So they're to take that message on. The, the message is peace. 
Go and preach this. But before they go, he, he gives them an opportunity to see the pierced hands and to see his pierced side. He's not just sending us out in our gifts and in our strength. And as much as we have vision for revival, until we've come to the place where we've seen his wounded hands and we've seen his wounded side, we won't be able to share in the compassion that he has for the people. So he brings them to that place first and he shares his heart with them and then he sends them out. And in breathing on them, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So it's not that one side is more important than the other, but the idea is, again, if we don't know the breath of God, we will never steward the mighty rushing wind of God. And I'll show you some examples of that in just a minute. You guys doing okay? Many of you know I grew up in the Air Force, and um, <clears throat> in my previous company, I worked for a, a private financial services company that um, exclusively did things for the military. And so um, I, at one point, wanted to join the military, and I was, I was testing and meeting with the recruiter, and I went so far, and then for whatever reason, I just didn't have peace, and so I kind of backed out. But I've never lost that passion for military. I, I love the culture. Um, I love military history. And um, being able to work in the business world and support the military kind of helped fulfill a lot of my passions. Um, now, anyone you know that's in the military probably has a basic training story, whether it's the fancy haircut, uh, you know, some of the trials, the things that they go through once they get into basic training. And a lot of my friends that went into the military, they went in with these huge ideas of assault rifles and, oh, I get to fly a jet, a fighter jet, or uh, I'm going to get to learn languages and travel the world. But when you get to basic training, that's not what you learn. You learn how to fold your underwear in a two-by-two. You learn how to make your bed. You learn how to shave. You learn how to wear your patches on the right sides of your uniform. And it all seems pretty useless. You, you kind of start to question, what did I sign up for? You're, you're kicking yourself. In my old company, we did something called the zero, PT, uh, zero day PT experience. And it was supposed to mimic what the soldiers go through on that first day. So they put us all on a bus at 4 a.m. and they said, put your head down and close your eyes. And they drove for 20 minutes and we're like, where are they taking us? And they literally lapped the, the building for 20 minutes and put us right back where we were. All of it was just to cause confusion and, and chaos. And so you get off the bus and you're getting yelled at and there's, there's sounds of bullets and screaming and war zone type things going on over the speakers. They just wanna introduce chaos because they break you down as an individual and then eventually build you up as a member of the team. But they wanted us to just taste that so we understood what it meant when we're talking to military members and consulting with them. One of the things that you'll come to find, though, is the purpose behind that military training. Those minor details are teaching you something. They're building character. You're building disciplines. You're learning the commander's intent. So when you do get into a war zone, it's not about folding underwear, but it's about following instructions. It's about attention to detail. If they cut you loose on a multi-million dollar fighter jet, they know that you have followed instructions. You know how to read a manual. The things that seem so insignificant, like patches on the right side of your uniform, when you get caught in, in a place and you don't really know where your, your friends are or your, your fellow soldiers versus the enemies, you know, well, my, my uniform looks like this, theirs looks like that. So all of those small things that seem so insignificant can save your life in the heat of battle. And the same is true for us in the spirit. You know, when the, when the Lord calls us, we don't always understand the importance of coming to a prayer meeting or finding time in, in, the, in the morning or in the evening to pray or read our Bible. We don't always understand the importance of those little dis disciplines, but this is the, the model. This is what he calls us to. 
He brings us to this place of knowing his heart, knowing his commander's intent, and understanding his design in the small, in that secret place, so that when revival comes, we can steward it well. It's that place that we learn the, the burden of God's heart. We learn to love him, and it produces the right love for others. What good would it do for us to see 20,000 people saved and then go to churches that are divided, that don't know the heart of God, that don't know how to bring him in and, and minister and build faith? And so he always brings us to this place, this secret place, this, this place of prayer and knowing his heart and sharing in a burden with him. And that's the place from which he sends us out. Amen? Okay, so there's a contrast to this. Now, we know that the disciples did it well. They spent time with Jesus in, in this upper room. And then we get to Acts 2 and we see this explosion of gifts. And if we were to keep reading, we would find that Peter preached and the Bible says thousands were saved just in that first sermon. That's just the nine o'clock for Peter. He's killing it. And then the Bible says that the Lord added to their numbers daily. So we just find this, this kind of multiplication that's happening. And it was because they had spent time with Jesus in the first place. But there is a scenario where the Lord offers us this, this invitation to know him and we reject that, but we still want to run in the power of the gifts and it actually shipwrecks our faith. We won't go super deep into it, but I'll just give you guys a couple of examples. Uh, Samson was appointed to be a deliverer for Israel and in the scriptures he was called a judge. He was a, a deliverer, maybe along the lines of like a prophet. God raises him up and he gives him this unique physical strength. And we all know the stories about Samson. He was empowered to, um, at one point, the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he was able to kill a lion with his bare hands. At another time, the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he fought a thousand Philistines with his bare hands. So he was someone who was appointed. He was raised up and, and was a, a, a symbol. He was something for Israel to look to as God's protection for them and some sort of a revival, the Spirit of God rushing on him. But what you also find is that the Lord had called him to something called a Nazarite vow. And all that that means is it was a couple of things that God had, had spoken to him. And there were a few others in scripture that had this. Little things like not to cut his hair. Don't, um, don't touch a carcass. Don't touch any dead thing. Um, he wasn't supposed to drink wine or eat anything from the vine. And it, it wasn't about just kind of the, the tit for tat rules of it. It was more a symbol for Samson to recognize this is my devotion to God. This is my remembrance of how I connect with God in the secret place. And as you read through his story, it seems that he broke all of those things. Now, again, it's not about trying to pinpoint him as a rule breaker, but the issue is he seems to have drifted from that secret place. He seems to have neglected that first place of being under the breath of God. And every time that you see revival, every time you see a big use of the gifts, you have to search back in the relationship and find that place where he made that invitation for that secret place for, for them being under the breath of God. So you'll find in Samson's life that he uses the gift selfishly you know, God in his mercy, he still empowers him. He still does what he's going to do as a sign for Israel. Um, but Samson ends his life pretty frustrated. And so it's not so much a, a question of, are you, a, you know, is he a bad guy or is he a good guy? The issue is, is more that he missed some of the things that God had. He missed God's heart. He used the gift selfishly. Um, king Saul was Israel's first king. He was anointed to be king over Israel. Um, and the Bible says there was a time that God rushed upon him by his spirit. Again, that wind of God stirring up the gifts for him um, such that he began to prophesy. He was named and kind of numbered among the prophets of Israel. 
And so people begin thinking, man, Saul's got it. Here's the revival. He's, he's, he's got the prophecies. He's got the gifts. But we know that Saul also fell away from the Lord. He was rejected as king. He died frustrated and, and depressed and discouraged because he didn't tend to that secret place. And the Bible says that God had given him a new heart and made him a new man early on in his, his kingship. But when we neglect those places, we're never able to steward the revival. When we neglect the breath of God, that place of intimacy, we don't know how to manage the mighty rushing wind of God. One other example is Simon the sorcerer. If you're reading in Acts 8, he's doing um, magic for the people. And uh, it's so phenomenal that they actually think it's, it's the power of God on him. And then the real power of God comes in the apostles. They're, they're preaching and they're healing people and they're casting out demons. And so Simon the sorcerer sees this and he says, hey, let me buy some of that. How are you doing that? Is it a potion? Let me buy it. I'll, I'll give you silver. And Peter rebukes him sharply and he says, listen, this is something that comes from the heart of God. This is for the glory of God. This is for salvation. This isn't about you. It's not about self. And so again, the idea is not just about rushing ahead in gifts. You can't push revival. You can't manufacture a move of God. If we do that ahead of being in the place of the spirit of, of God breathing on us, being in that place of intimacy, it shipwrecks our faith. And the tragedy is we get to the place, like in Matthew, Jesus says that there are going to be people that say, Lord, Lord, I, I prophesied in your name. I healed the sick. I cast out demons. And he's going to say, I never knew you. And what a tragic ending. And, and this isn't Jesus saying, I never knew you like he, this is a stranger. This isn't like Jesus forgot that he created this person. This is saying, he, he, call, he goes on to call them a worker of lawlessness. So what you have to understand is the law is a revelation of God's holiness. The law teaches us God's character and his person. So a worker of lawlessness is someone who continually and willfully rejects the person of God, that secret place, that relationship with God. They're rejecting the intimacy of God, but accepting the power and the gifts. And it leads to a faith that is shipwrecked. The analogy that I gave in the first service was it's, it's kind of like if we do a paid internship here at the church. And, and, you know, everybody signs up and they do their applications and, you know, we get everybody on the payroll and we start in our system. And one guy decides he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to do the application, but um, he still wants to wear the Springs Church shirt. And he goes downtown and he's preaching and he's telling people about the church. He won't come to staff meetings. He won't answer phone calls or emails or texts. But he's out busy and he's preaching the gospel and he's bringing people to the church. And then at the end of two weeks, he decides, hey, I'm here for my paycheck. You're not on the payroll, brother. <laughs> I never knew you. So it, it, again, what the Lord is, is calling us to is, is something of a connection with his heart. And it's easy for us to chase after the, the next prophet, the next big name, the next big thing, the next podcast or whatever it is. And none of those things, I'm not coming after anybody, but if we aren't starting in, in the place of knowing God's heart, if we haven't shared a burden with him from the people, um, there's nothing that we're going to actually gain from running to the next conference and reading the next book. There's a, a book that I read from uh, Randy Sawyer called Battling the Black Dog. And he has some, a pretty incredible story about his own walk with depression. And he calls depression is the black dog. And he, he basically talks about how depression is one of the tools the enemy uses to destroy pastors. And he talked about in his own story 
how some of the things that he suffered in his depression and anxiety, he never recovered from. Even though the Lord restored his mind and brought him back into reasonable health, there are some things he never recovered from. And what he describes is, we think about depression only as a form of sadness, meaning uh, heartbreak or something along those lines. He said there's also a depression that's very common in ministry that's actually related to just being depleted. And in his own story, he said he went from one miracle to the next, one big conference to the next. I got to chase the next big thing. Revival's over here. We got to get this person in. Big event, next big thing. And he said yes to every phone call, yes to every meeting. He was running, running, running until his body literally gave out. So physically, emotionally, he was depleted. His doctor told him there were literal chemical imbalances that he was dealing with. And it was, a, it was what they called a, a post-adrenaline um, uh, stress disorder, I think it's called post-adrenaline depression. So he was literally depleted. And then once the physical and emotional toll had kind of run its course, then the enemy jumped on him and the spiritual course kind of ran. So it was a very long time for him to battle this black dog. So if we're not careful, if we won't settle ourselves under the breath of God, if we won't stay in the place of intimacy and we're chasing only after the big revival, the big uses of the gifts, you can literally become kind of like a, a spiritual adrenaline junkie where, where you can't even sit still. You won't even appreciate just hearing what the word of God has to say with just a cup of coffee and the Bible. You gotta have the big light show. And listen, it's not saying that the gifts are bad or that they're wrong. The Bible says we should eagerly desire these higher spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues, all of it serves the body, but it has to flow from a place where we've shared in a relationship with God's heart and there's intimacy there. And that's the only place we're going to be able to sustain what he does afterwards. This is a moment that I believe we can all see revival. I think we're seeing sprouts of revival amidst all of the chaos and darkness and the challenges. I think all of us have generally a hope and, and we want to see God come and sweep through. And so I think this is the moment that he's calling us to that quiet place. He's calling us back to those core disciplines, calling us back to that place of just saying, just know my heart, just be near to me. I'm gonna read one more verse as we get ready to close. I'll invite the worship team back. I'm in Matthew chapter nine, and I'm gonna read, um, just read 35 through 38. Uh, so it reads, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So a couple of things strike me in this passage. First of all, it's um, the Lord's harvest. So he is the one who provides the harvest. He is the one who drives the revival. He provides that. That's his work. It's what he desires. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to face hell. So it's his work and it's his desire to bring about a harvest. What kind of threw me was why is he the owner of the harvest He's the one that creates the harvest, but he's telling us to pray about it. He's telling us to pray for the laborers. That's that place of him saying what's important is not just people who can run out with tools that can just whack down the crops and bring them in. There's a particular way that you're going to gather in this harvest. 
He's inviting us in to be laborers with him, co-laborers with him. So once we've come in and we've known his heart, then we can go out and gather the harvest in the way he intends. And what did he say when he looked out at the people? He says that they were um, sick, they were diseased, they were afflicted. It says when he saw them, he had compassion on them. It says that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Can you hear his heart? I wish that I always thought that way about the culture, about the people that I'm praying for. I've spent a lot of time praying for people and, and wanting to see things change in people, sitting over lunches with people and phone calls, and it seems they get worse and worse and worse. And no matter what book I recommend or how good I think my counsel is, it just seems that the enemy tightens his grip. But until you can come to a place where the burden of God gets on you for someone, where you share in his compassion for someone. There will be no fruit. You can't manage a revival without God's heart. So the harvest is there, it's ripe. When he looks out at the culture, he doesn't just see you know, the way we divide ourselves. Are you Democrat or Republican? Are you LGBT? He says, that's my harvest. They're lost, they're, they're helpless, they're harassed. Demonic agendas on either side. They don't know up from down. They don't know if they're male or female. They don't know what to do with babies. He says they're harassed. They're helpless. That's my harvest. Go bring them to me. So can we look at them as the Lord does? Can we anticipate the day of Pentecost? Can we see ahead to where the harvest is coming? Can we be moved for revival, but instead of trying to force it and manufacture a move of God in our own strength, we go back to the place of God. We go back to the secret place of letting him breathe on us, being near enough to him that we feel his breath. We share his heart. We see his wounds. And then go out from a place of compassion. Amen? Instead of an altar call this morning, I thought, why don't we take a few moments to just search search God's heart in that place of worship, just in that place of stillness. And so we're just gonna take a minute to sing together. Um, worship team's got a song ready for us and then we'll come back and close out. Why don't you guys stand? If you wanna come to the front and worship together, you're welcome. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.